0: Welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savella. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. And it's been another tough two weeks for those of us who are intent on keeping our humanity intact and our hearts open. And going through all of these ups and downs myself led me to reconnect with a story that was gifted to me by a woman I met in Bainbridge Island um, last summer. It's called Fatima the Spinner and the Tent. And although this story has been around for a long time and is known in other cultures, it's commonly attributed to the Sufis and is part of their Uh, protocol of teaching stories. So I think what I want to do is start with the story and then and then we'll go from there, my friends. So sit back and relax and here's the story of Fatima the Spinner and the Tent. Once long ago in a time much like this one, in a city in the farthest west or the farthest east, there was a prosperous spinner with a daughter named Fatima. The spinner was very proud of his daughter, and he taught her everything that he knew about his craft. And one day came to her and said, Daughter, we're going to go on a journey. I have some business dealings in the islands, in the Middle Sea, and I'd like for you to come with me, Learn what I do, and who knows, you might meet a handsome youth along the way whom you could take as a husband. So the two of them set off, and they traveled from island to island, the father doing his trading, until one day, when they were on their way to Crete, a huge storm blew up and wrecked the ship. Fatima was washed up on the seashore near the city of Alexandria, barely conscious. Her father was drowned. Everything that they had had on the ship was lost. She was utterly destitute, and she was so traumatized and exhausted by the experience that she really could barely even remember her name, let alone her life before the shipwreck. She was wandering around on the beach in a very confused state when a family of weavers found her. This family was not at all well-off, but they took pity on her and took her into their home. And as she recovered, they taught her their craft. And so Fatima learned how to weave and eventually made a second life for herself. Within a year or two, she finally had some happiness again. But one day, when she was back on that same beach, a band of slave traders landed and captured her and carried her along with some other captives off in their ship. She begged them to let her go. (laughs) But, of course, the slave traders had absolutely no sympathy for her. They took her to Istanbul to sell her as a slave. So once again, her world had completely collapsed. Now, the day that she arrived as a slave for sale in that marketplace, there weren't very many buyers um, but there was a man there who owned a woodyard he made masts for ships and he was looking for a slave to help him and there was something about fatima whether it was her sorrow or i uh, who knows what that made him decide to buy her and he had the feeling that mm, at least if he bought her He might be able to give her a little bit better life than some of the other men who were there in the market looking for slaves. And he took her home then, intending for Fatima to be a serving maid for his wife. When they got to his house, though, (laughs) he found out that he had just lost all of his money because the ship's cargo in which he had invested, his cargo, had been captured by pirates. Suddenly, he was broke, and he couldn't afford workers. So it was just him and Fatima and his wife left alone to keep his business going. And the three of them then had to do all of the work and heavy labor of making ship mass. Fatima had to work really hard at this new trade, but she was quite grateful to her employer for rescuing her. He was a kind man, and so she worked really hard and before long became his trusted helper. After a while, she started to feel a little bit settled and happy again in her third career as a mast builder. One day, her employer said to her, Fatima, I want you to take a cargo of ship mass to the island of Java. I want you to go as my agent and make sure that you sell them at a good profit. Well, Fatima took up this responsibility and she set off. But yes, when her ship was off the coast of China, a huge storm came up. There was a big seasonal typhoon which wrecked the ship and Fatima once again found herself washed up, destitute on the shore of some foreign land. When she came to consciousness, she wept bitterly. It certainly seemed that nothing in her life was ever going to go according to her expectations. And she cried out, why is it that whenever something starts to go right for me, something comes along and destroys it? Why is it that whenever I try to do anything, I end up in grief? Why? What, what is it? How can I be tra- attracting so much bad luck? But of course, there was no answer from the cosmos to her question. And eventually, she gathered herself up and got up from the sand and started to walk inland. Now, it so happened that nobody in China had ever heard of Fatima, and they didn't know anything about her troubles or her background. However, there was an ancient legend that one day, a stranger, a woman, was going to arrive who would be able to make a tent for the emperor. No one in China yet could make tents. And everyone looked upon the fulfillment of this prophecy with anticipation. Over the years, a number of emperors had tried to find this stranger and sent out heralds and messengers to make sure that when she arrived, she wasn't going to be missed. And this practice had continued and was taking place when Fatima arrived in China. And in fact, a herald from the emperor arrived at a town by the seashore at the same time that Fatima stumbled in there. The people immediately knew she was a stranger, was not a big place, and sent her to the Herald. And through an interpreter, it was established that she was going to have to go to the emperor. When she got to the emperor, he said, Lady, can you make a tent? And Fatima thought about all the different places she'd been, all the cities she'd lived in, and her memories of tents. I think so, she said to the emperor. So Fatima asked for rope, but there wasn't any to be had. And remembering her time with her father as a spinner, she collected flax and she made ropes. Then she asked for strong cloth for the tent. But the Chinese didn't have any of the kind that she needed. So drawing on her experience with those weavers, she made some sturdy tent cloth. Then, of course, she needed tent poles, but there were none in China. They had never built a tent before. So Fatima drew on her experience and training with the mast builder in Istanbul, and made the tent poles. When she had all of these materials together, then she gathered a few helpers and instructed them, drawing on that memory that she had of tents that she'd seen in her travels. And a tent was constructed for the emperor. When this wonder was revealed to the emperor of China, he offered Fatima the fulfillment of any wish. And she chose to settle in China. At some point, she married a kind and handsome man, and they had children. And she remained there in China, in happiness, surrounded by her family until the end of her days. Now, that's a relatively simple story. And the message may be kind of obvious. It's less puzzling than the fairy tales and many of the myths shared here. I mean, essentially, I think the example of Fatima is showing us that all of life's experiences, good and bad, are raw material for our creations. And they are all opportunities to learn, and all that we may learn may be required someday. We also get the message that no matter how good or bad one situation might be, circumstances change. Things go up and down. You never know. Because you're really unhappy one day doesn't mean that you will be unhappy tomorrow or the day after. That's all easy to grasp. I think we probably all recognize that in every challenge there's an opportunity, and yes, things change. And yet, like most really profound truths about life, it is harder to live than to grasp. And I'm wondering if that image of the tent and Fatima's travails and hardships might help us stay connected to the truth in that message. It may also be an aid in taking the longer view of events as they unfold for each of us personally, and then also collectively in our respective communities. Because this is nothing new, the up and down, the complete collapse of a world, tremendous loss, and then the process of rebuilding. Rebuilding under circumstances that were not previously known or imagined. I mean, Fatima, when she was a spinner, did not know anything about mast building, Each world she ended up in, each set of circumstances, was brand new to her. I think a lot of us are feeling that way right now, or hoping that we're going to feel that way right now. And what this story tells us is that this has happened before, because we have a story about it. I really love the metaphor of the tent as that creative project that requires all that Fatima has learned and so all that she's experienced. It's really fitting that what she makes is a space, a shelter, a gathering place that holds it all, if you will, everywhere she's been, everything she's learned. There's a place for everything. And that is one of the challenges that we have to accept in our present moment as we are personally collectively experiencing eruptions if you will of the repressed feelings and fears and hopes that have been contained in various ways that are now bursting forth threatening you know destruction or offering us hope depending What we see is that there's a real need to be with it, to be with it all, to be with it, investigate it, and accept all of it. And when I say accept, I'm not talking about shrugging it off or condoning things that are terrible. I'm talking about the need for a creative response, for creative expression. My experience of this recently led me to a book that I've loved for decades called Centering by M.C. Richards. And I want to bring a couple of things that she said into this program. The book was written in the early 1960s. Richards was a potter and a poet with a Zen Buddhist inflection. She was a teacher at Black Mountain College and a student of life. She writes, It takes a long time to learn that nothing is wasted. It takes a long time, and a lot of suffering usually, to understand that there is more to life and to poetry than our conscious purposes. More than our conscious purposes. There's that mystery, my friends. Our expression, then, our creative response to everything that is happening, everything that is percolating up through us and through those around us. doesn't. That doesn't mean literal. That doesn't mean literal. It can be metaphorical, symbolic, images and rituals, expressions in the language of psyche. You might make art. You might write a poem or a song or a manifesto. But you can also make a ritual out of an ordinary act. For example, if you despair at the ugliness in the world, you can commit to a daily practice of creating beauty in some way. If you despair at the divisiveness in your community, you can make a practice of looking every person who crosses your path in the eye and truly seeing them. Who knows what you might put in motion or what might sprout from these tiny actions? Here's another bit from Richards. She asks, how do we perform the craft of life? Because in a sense, we all are artists now, whether or not we are literally, technically producing what's been called an artistic product. Life itself is art. Life itself is something that we create. And she shares this little meditation on the word potential. Potential. Potency and potentiality, that is to say, both the power present and the power latent. In Latin, Richards observes, those are the same word. Power present and power latent. In Latin, those are the same word. And this is wisdom, she writes. For the potentiality is also a present power with which we must deal and to which we must speak. A condition of generative potency, a possibility in persons and things, not yet visible in force, but present in seed. Any conscious communication that we attempt with the layers of self and psyche enables an expression that can bring something new into the world. It might bring some resolution, even healing, if not closure. And who knows if we really want things to end. I mean, do we want all of that we're suffering right now to end, or do we want to learn to go with it? Do we want to be transformed? In my last program, I read you poetry as a way of sharing a practice that I have to be present, to stay with what is, to feel the value in the smallest action and moment. And I want to add another element to that. In addition to this practice of being present, learning to be open to outcome. And I got that phrase open to outcome from Angelus Arian in her book The Fourfold Way. In this book she draws on indigenous cultural practices from around the world and she links fall, the season of fall, the season that we are in now, to the way or path of the teacher. Just as we all are all just as we are all artists now, we are also teachers practicing and modeling for each other what is best in ourselves and the world. And Arian writes of being open to outcome, which is a different way of saying to detach from the outcome. But I really like this notion of being open to outcome. When we talk about detachment, it's easy to misinterpret that as not caring, as just throwing something out there and being, oh, well, what the hell? But in this phrase, being open to outcome, we recognize that we're acting from love and from a nobility in character and the wisdom that we've acquired and some trust in life, and doing this without knowing the effect that we will have. There is a lot of pain right now, absolutely. And while we take appropriate political action and spend time looking at our own character and values, let's not forget to make those actions in service to life and to bring beauty into the world. Last week, as part of my response to the situation, I repotted some plants and tiny trees that needed a new home. And to do this, I had to take multiple plants out of some large pots, which required a lot of careful uh, work with the hand trowel and with the fingers, identifying and disentangling and handling roots. And despite my care, of course, things got hacked. Um, And I talked to the plants about the pain that It seemed to me they had to be feeling, and its purpose. The necessity of teasing them apart so that each plant could find a better home, more space. And in that funny, beautiful way that life works, I later found this poem. Titled, Repotting, by Elaine Dunstan. I remember now what my father taught me, with his green and gentle hands, fingernails caked with earth. The roots need breaking up, he'd say, before repotting. Otherwise, the plant won't grow, because it's still bound by the shape of its first pot. I would watch, transfixed, as he gently yet firmly unbinded the roots. Some would get torn, ripped apart by necessity, freeing this plant from its rigid shape, I wondered, did it hurt? How long I sat with the same shape, my roots pot-bound, by fear of change. Perhaps it was fear of how it might feel when necessity's fingers prized them apart, tearing at the known, breaking me free for bigger things. I repot my own plants now, gently unbinding the roots just like he showed me, tearing where necessary shaking the soil from the tangle as the dirt clods fall. My tears go with them. It does hurt. Placing the little plant in a bigger pot, I smile. Placing the little plant in a bigger pot. Might that be each one of us right now, friends? And that's it for me, Catherine Savella, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. If you're new to Myth and the Mojave, I invite you to go to the website or the Facebook page and subscribe so that you receive regular program announcements every time I release a new episode. Feel free to share this program with others and spread the word about Myth and the Mojave. And if you're finding something of value in these programs, I hope you'll join the Myth and the Mojave community on Bandcamp. For only $5 a month, you have unlimited access to all of the programs that are archived there, free downloads of everything new that I create, and you'll play an essential role in making future programs possible. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.